The next faculty person I met with was Dr. Hyams, and we began by discussing a patient with a prior history of breast discomfort due to large breast size. Fifty-year-old woman who has a two-centimeter infiltrating ductal cancer and stereotactic biopsy with a 4.7-centimeter area of suspicious microcalcification for DCIS. Patient has large breasts, 46 DDD, with chronic neck and back pain and would like breast reduction, keeping her native breast tissue. So the questions are, would you recommend pre-op MRI? Partial mastectomy with reduction pattern, sentinel lymph node biopsy, followed by right breast reduction after final path, left partial mastectomy with reduction, sentinel lymph node biopsy, and right breast reduction, or bilateral mastectomy with flaps. Well, you know, this is an increasing problem as we are better at diagnosing DCIS. This patient has generous breasts, even though the tumor covers a broad area. Certainly the patient is a potential candidate for breast conservation. I think that MRI is not something that I would get in this setting. The cancer is ductal. There is evolving data, including data presented this year, that suggests that the end important result, which is recurrence, is not helped by doing MRI unless you're really looking for something else or you have a young woman with very dense breasts. And DCIS, of course, is not a particularly suitable target for MRI. It may pick it up, but you can certainly miss it. I think in this case, you really take the best shot with working closely, surgeon and radiologist, to demarcate the area of DCIS. And I think this would be an excellent candidate for a reduction mastopexy approach followed by contralateral surgery for a match. There are a number of choices of when and where you can do it. I would certainly not do it at the same time because you don't know what you're going to be ending up with. You have to tell the patient that there's a reasonable possibility of a positive margin. You may need to do more. But the nice thing about mastopexy reduction is that you really can get very generous amount of tissue removal. Now, is this generally done by just the surgeon, breast surgeon, or is the plastic surgeon involved? Well, I think it depends on your level of comfort. I, like many surgical oncologists today, I think, have evolved to doing oncoplastic surgery because I think it is both very well appreciated by patients in terms of outcome. It does allow you to take big blocks of tissue. And unfortunately, at least until the economic turndown, if you practice in a non-major medical center environment, it's increasingly difficult to get plastic surgeons to jointly schedule on a regular basis. So it actually is a far more effective approach. That's interesting. So, I mean, is there a general lack of access to plastic surgeons for breast cancer at this point? Well, I think there is. I mean, I live in a community that is one in which we have a large number of people who call themselves plastic surgeons, most of whom are dermatologists and other specialties that do cosmetic work of varying kinds, including breast work. But with only a relatively limited number of true board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons, and they, unless they have a practice that's really devoted to that, tend to have an economic model and dynamic that really precludes their ability to do on-demand work, and that makes it quite difficult. Interesting. We have another case from Dr. Denise Miller of Denver, 45-year-old patient with a palpable left breast cancer, negative right clinical exam and mammogram found to have a right cancer on the MRI. MRI is done because her breasts were very dense on mammogram. At surgery, she has positive nodes on the right, which were seen on the MRI. 
Question, should MRI be done in all patients with dense breasts and negative mammograms with cancer on one side? Well, I don't think the data is quite there for that. Clearly, there are many tests that can be done, and you will come up with positive results that you wouldn't have otherwise had. And that's, of course, the story of screening CT scans. However, I think that thus far, the indications for MRI are particularly notable in young women with either gene abnormalities or family histories that suggest an unknown gene abnormality or familial risk. I would not normally do that in most patients. Okay, a case from Dr. John Brown, 36-year-old woman with a 3.5 centimeter invasive cancer. She receives neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Tumor decreases in size to less than 2 centimeter. The axilla is negative on exam as well as MRI, and the patient wants reconstruction. She has a lot of anxiety about the status of her contralateral breast as a negative MRI and B-to-C cup breast. What surgical procedure would you recommend? Would you take an oncoplastic approach? This is for management of a larger breast cancer that had about, it sounds like, a close to 50% response, but not by any means a complete response. Again, I think that one has to have a sense of where in the breast this is. There are certain, obviously, areas of the breast that are more forgiving. Probably the least forgiving in my hands is the inferior aspect of the breast, sort of a 5 o'clock to 7 o'clock position, where doing a generous resection almost always results in a sucked-in downturned nipple. And that's the kind of patient particularly if she's older, the breasts are moderate size, there's some pendulous aspect to it that you can really do a very nice job of removing the tissue and giving a better outcome. So that would be the kind of procedure that I might consider in this individual. I think the point, obviously, of neoadjuvant therapy is, A, to make an assessment, perhaps, of response to therapy, but, B, the real indication in this setting is to get a downstaging that may allow breast conservation. Mastectomy is certainly an option, and depending upon the location of the tumor, even nipple-sparing mastectomy could still be an option as long as the tumor is well away from the nipple-areolar complex. What about systemic therapy in a patient who has residual disease after neoadjuvant therapy, for example, with an anthracycline and taxane? What are your thoughts about that, and what do you think about the NSABP trial trying to look at those patients in terms of using a biologic agent, sunitinib? Yeah. I think that's actually an important issue. All of us are very frustrated when we see patients who don't have a complete pathologic response. We know from B18 and additional data from B27 that clinical responses are nice, and they may correlate, at least in B18, with an improvement in disease-free survival, but they don't correlate with the overall survival endpoint. So in anything less than a pathologic CR, it would be appealing to treat with more. The reality is, is that we don't know that that's justified, and I think that should be done in a clinical trial such as the NSABP study. Another case, 50-year-old woman who presents with a right upper quadrant mass. Mammogram shows it to be 3.2 centimeters. It's a new lesion compared to prior mammogram. 3 centimeters on ultrasound, hypoechoic, core biopsy, grade 2, infiltrating ductal cancer, ERPR negative, HER2 positive. MRI, no other areas of suspicious lesions in the breast, but there are large right axillary nodes. Bone scans negative. The CT shows an enlarged right superclav node. PET scan shows superclav node to be positive, questionable posterior cervical node, 
she gets neoadjuvant chemo with plans to go to either a lumpectomy or a mastectomy and radiation afterwards. Question, would you treat this patient for a potential cure knowing their suspicious posterior cervical nodes or treat as metastatic? Well, I think you can probably prove it with the information that you have by doing a fine needle image-directed biopsy of either the cervical nodes and even supraclavicular nodes would qualify in the same setting for that kind of disease. I think this is a patient who has obviously a very concerning prognosis, and the issue of local management is going to be very secondary. Whether you do lumpectomy or mastectomy or any breast conservation technique is really not going to be the driver in her. So the issue is the most effective chemotherapy with Herceptin and doing that relatively directly up front with surgery reserved to that time when it's convenient. So would you want to get tissue and prove that the supraclav or cervical nodes were positive? Would you do that? Well, I would in the sense that it would help me First of all, it helps the patient in terms of planning, and it helps us make decisions. It's probably not quite as critical in this case as a patient who's a candidate for hormonal therapy because in such patients you'd probably treat with hormonal therapy first. But in a HER2-positive ER-negative patient, clearly chemo and Herceptin is going to be indicated. However, I would not feel compelled to do uh, primary surgery in the breast if I knew that the patient had stage 4 disease. Yeah, I mean, the question is whether or not to do the surgery And I guess that would be determined by whether or not you're concerned about local disease getting out of control? Is that what would get you to operate? Well, you know, I think that, remember, the breast is still a reasonable indicator of what's happening elsewhere. And I think the studies that we've seen, such as Buzdar's study, and we actually have a small study we'll be submitting for San Antonio, looking at an alternate regimen with uh, anthracycline and concomitant taxane Herceptin, the response rates can be extraordinary, 60-70% pathologic CR. And if the patient ends up with the pathologic CR and the primary tumor in the breast, and the other nodes disappear, that obviously is very helpful knowledge to know. Now, this is a series of local patients that you had? or what These are of? locally advanced patients. It was a pilot study of about 23 patients. Oh, but I mean locally within your institution? Yes. Well, no, actually, it was a multicenter trial. So we had sites in New York and California. 23 patients. And what kind of chemo did they get? They received Doxel and concomitant weekly Taxol and Herceptin. So I guess unlike the Buzdar and also the NOAA regimen that was just reported in San Antonio, they don't get the anthracyclines, the Doxel, and the trastuzumab at the same time? Or they, they do, do, all at oh, the same do. time. Wow. So you Which get, is, yes, all so at the same time. And we designed that study specifically because of the minimized incidence of cardiotoxicity with liposomal doxorubicin. So I guess... That's the way that agent is positioned, but I'm not sure. Do we know much about doxel or liposomal doxorubicin with trastuzumab? Well, there is actually data. There's data from an ECOG trial that looked at doxel, trastuzumab, and actually, now that I think about it, we don't have the information with trastuzumab. We had it with doxel and taxane only right, that right. in the ECOG trial. And that's why we did a pilot. It was a safety and efficacy trial. And with measurements of ejection fraction by MUGA, both before, during, and at the conclusion of therapy. I guess we don't know a whole lot about these other regimens, but from what I can see, it doesn't seem like they've seen that much cardiac toxicity. They haven't seen as much. I mean, of course, the epirubicin, you might expect to see somewhat less, but... And that was with the Buzdar regimen. That's with the Buzdar regimen. There's always a question as to whether or not that reflects biological dosing changes as much as a change in compound. 
With the Doxel, as I said, I can't go into the specifics now, but we were very impressed with the responsiveness. And certainly we saw no reason to stop the trial as we progressed based on the data that we had in terms of cardiotoxicity. Maybe you want to comment on the NOAA study that was presented at San Antonio. To my eyes, it was kind of a similar concept to what you're talking about. Well, it was similar in the sense that, you know, they allowed advanced disease. Our patients, most of them had advanced disease, locally advanced disease, in some cases with bulky nodes and in a couple of cases, bilateral disease. And I think that the take-home message is, is that when you combine trastuzumab or Herceptin with effective chemotherapeutic agents, you can have really dramatic responses. So the most aggressive, most dangerous tumors we have are really the ones that respond the most, and that is a corollary to the sort of oncotype story. I guess still, you know, you have the issue of when do you pull the trigger on neoadjuvant therapy? So, for example, suppose you have a situation where breast-conserving surgery is possible. It's not locally advanced. Let's say it's less than five centimeters, but we know it's HER2 positive. Is your trigger to go for neoadjuvant therapy a little bit lower when it's HER2 positive? Or do you kind of use the same approach either way? I think it's the same approach either way. Interesting. Because I guess, I mean, obviously you can give trastuzumab and chemo post-op, too. So maybe there's not any more reason to do it. We have another case from Dr. Marla Dudak, mm-hmm. 49-year-old woman with an abnormal ultrasound, right breast ultrasound core biopsy shows an atypical papilloma, needle localization shows multifocal DCIS with negative margins, post-op MRI shows a suspicious left lesion and residual suspicious enhancement, both clumped and mass-like around the lumpectomy bed. An ultrasound biopsy is done on the left and reveals an invasive carcinoma. Question from Dr. Dudak, would you perform a pre-op MRI for an atypical papilloma in a 49-year-old with a family history before going to the OR? Would you re-excise the lumpectomy cavity based on the post-op MRI? Now, if I understood what you told me, and that was a long, <laughs> long story, that the invasive cancer that was diagnosed is in the contralateral breast, right. is that correct? Mm-hmm. There's atypical papilloma, not mm-hmm. ductal hyperplasia, right. atypical papilloma in the first breast, right. and there's some other multifocal DCIS mm-hmm. in that breast. Right. Well, you know, this is a woman who has uh, what we might call bad soil. I mean, she has a lot going on and difficult studies. I think this is the kind of patient that you sit down and have a discussion with before you start sticking lots of needles in. And when you start adding that up and you even consider other issues, which we don't have available, such as family history and so forth, this is somebody who may in fact elect to proceed with ablative surgery on both sides directly. And I think that, you know, while all of us who are disciples of Bernie Fisher may become concerned with the statistics that show an increased rate of mastectomy, and even in the best of circumstances, a mastectomy is still a mastectomy, the ability to do immediate reconstruction and skin sparing in many cases, and in some nipple sparing, really gives us opportunities to be reasonable about what we're trying to accomplish. And of course, it depends a lot on the patient's interests. Actually, Dr. Dudek has another case that I thought was interesting. 64-year-old woman presents with spontaneous bloody right-sided nipple discharge. Mammogram and ultrasound are normal. MRI shows bilateral retroareolar enhancement. MRI biopsy reveals high-grade DCIS. Question, 
should the nibble areolar complex be removed on the right side. So presumably the DCS was only on the one side. Mm -hmm. And she's asking about removing the side that had the DCIS or the opposite side. I'm not sure I I followed you. Let's see, the nipple areolar complex. I assume this is the side with the DCIS, yeah. Yeah, I think this is one of those cases in which it is, if in fact the DCIS is really truly retroreolar, it's hard to imagine that you will get much opportunity to save the nipple and areola on that side. Furthermore, I think the issue of frozen section evaluation of margins in DCIS is notoriously awful, and many breast pathologists absolutely refuse to do it because it's so misleading. So I think this is one of those settings where, and of course DCIS tracks up to the nipple and most of these kinds of close ones, and it certainly doesn't meet any of the criteria for nipple sparing. Case from Dr. John Brown, 45-year-old woman with a significant positive family history, has two previous negative stereotactic biopsies directed at calcifications, third stereotactic biopsy of a calcification, grade 2 DCIS, well-localized, focal on MRI, patient states, I'm tired of worrying about this, please do whatever it takes so my risk can be as close to zero as possible in the future. She has normal-sized breasts question about choice of surgical procedure. I would point out to her that I think that her biopsies were not done because she had DCIS, the first two. They were done because of a mammographic finding that raised a flag, rightly or wrongly. She had one instance of DCIS, well-confined, not of high-grade features, I don't have the hormone receptor status, but you know, presumably this is a patient who's still an excellent candidate for local breast conservation surgery with appropriate adjuvant radiation therapy and tamoxifen for postoperative management. So this kind of individual is the difficult kind of individual we face whose fears are driving them towards mastectomy. I think we have to respect their concerns, and obviously there are levels at which you proceed, but I would not do that on the first discussion with these individuals. I try to give them a rational sense of the balance that they have. Once that's all considered, obviously in the end the patient has to make a decision. Do you think the increasing use of MRI is leading to more mastectomies than a few years ago? Well, I think it is. And the problem is it comes down to what we find that actually is clinically meaningful. I mean, I think DCIS, of course, as a disease is the best example of this. It's a disease that is non-lethal. Any study we look at has, you know, 10-year survivals in excess of 90%. And the deaths are not due to disease for the most part. I think that there is a form of DCIS that is likely to progress. I think there are forms of DCIS that will never progress. It's a little bit of the conundrum we face in prostate disease. And this goes back to the autopsy studies that were done in the 60s that show that there's a far greater incidence of DCIS than becomes clinically meaningful in that day. Now we're actually picking that up, not in autopsy studies, but in MRs. We're all faced with those difficult kinds of problems. I had a patient myself the day before yesterday who had an MR abnormality, felt to probably be benign, but there was an area of enhancement that was suspicious enough that a second MRI was recommended after several months. The patient had that, finally said, I'd like you to get rid of it. We convinced her that it 
should be biopsied rather than excised, expecting to be able to tell her that everything was benign. And in fact, uh, MR-directed biopsy showed invasive cancer. Now, all of a sudden, we're much more worried about the other, not quite as suspicious, but other areas of enhancement around. And I think this really becomes very problematic. Yes, the short answer to the long answer is, I think that patients are having much more, and I think MR is the major driver of mastectomy. What about the issue of prophylactic mastectomies? Do you think that that's being utilized more? I think it's being utilized more, again, because of the opportunity to do a better job with reconstruction. These are patients who are excellent candidates for nipple-sparing procedures. Laura Esserman has shown nicely that the ductal tissue can be well-removed up into the nipple. Others don't go quite so aggressively at removing that tissue, but that tissue is still easy to examine. I think that for those women, they can actually go to the operating room and come out of the operating room looking almost like they did when they went in, unless they've got very large pendulous breasts. What about sentinel node biopsy in patients who are having prophylactic mastectomies? I don't do those because I'm not convinced that we know truly what a sentinel node is in that setting. You obviously just make an injection in the sapis plexus and take whatever node lights up first, but certainly that's a significant jump from the data that we have from the studies that are existing today. Any issues, particularly in terms of local therapy, that surgeons in practice ask you about that we haven't talked about? Surgeons have traditionally not tended to play a significant role in more than the surgery itself. And I think as we move forward in the breast arena, that surgeons not only will, but that it's incredibly important for surgeons to play a more active role in the evaluation and, in some cases, perhaps even management of systemic therapies. I think that means that surgeons need to at least work very closely with their oncology colleagues in looking at new models for assessing response, in some cases using the window of opportunity between diagnosis and surgery for sequential tissue acquisition, in some cases looking at the traditional neoadjuvant arena. But this is incredibly important for us to really understand how therapies work and to be able to get away from cytotoxics and into more biologically oriented therapies. You actually wrote a paper this past year, Understanding Tumor Profiling and Assessing Treatment, that reviewed that, particularly the issue of Oncotype as well as Mamiprin. Always when you go through the process of doing a review article like that, it gets you to think about every little angle. I'm curious what it was like to put that paper together and kind of what your thoughts are about where we are and where we're headed with that. Well, I think this approach has been very important. The initial publication of the New England Journal of Medicine of the 70-gene assay by Mark Van de Veer is really a landmark. It said for the first time that we should be able to segregate out those patients who are likely to have been cured by effective surgical intervention from those who are at high risk. I think the folks at Genomic Health, of course, took that a step further because of the ability to do a really extraordinary collaboration with the NSABP, where there was a study that already existed that was very suitable for validating their approach. Although that is a retrospective assay, in a sense, or a retrospective study, in a sense, it utilizes all of the features that make prospective studies important in terms of defined follow-up and randomization if one's looking at therapeutic responses. Where are we going in the future? Well, I think probably the biggest 
drawback or weakness of the first-generation assays, genomic assays, is that they are largely empiric. They have been derived by correlation, not because of hypothesis. And that means that those assays may give us information in addition to prognosis about prediction of response, but those response predictors are going to be largely class-driven, hormonal therapy versus chemotherapy. Where I think we need to move is to begin to look, and I think the second and third generation of assays will, at developing gene markers that are more rationally derived based on an appreciation of differing biologies, which often exist across even different tissue types. And then that gives us that critical link from diagnosis to specific therapy, and that's obviously the core of personalized medicine, the place that we need to head. For practical purposes right now, where, if at all, do you think the mammoprint assay fits in in clinical practice? Is there a role for it right now? Well, I think that it depends, of course, which guidelines you look at at any given moment in time. Certainly, mammoprint was endorsed by the St. Gallen group. It hasn't yet by some of the North American guideline groups. Mammoprint is a somewhat different approach. I think it may well be very valid also, there are practical issues to using mammoprint. You have to know before you go to the operating room that you're going to want to do or consider doing that assay. You need to have a mechanism for collecting material, and if you have a relatively small tumor, your pathologist may not be willing to give that tumor up to put it in an RNA fixative. So there are some limits to using mammoprint on an absolute practical basis. The thing that was different about Oncotype was that it wasn't just prognostic, it was also predictive. And right now, I guess that's the only example out there where you get that kind of predictive impact in terms of chemotherapy, which is the big question. Well, I think that's what made Oncotype take off. I mean, everybody thought it was interesting that there was a prognostic assay, but there are relatively few disease settings in which that provides you with enough information to make decision. And the ones that do, it's where the decision is to treat or not treat. So breast cancer that is considered good prognosis, prostate cancer, intermediate Gleason score, perhaps the stage 2 colorectal cancers. But it's a relatively smaller indication than the ability to predict therapeutic response.